Hello, my name is Leonard Sultana from An Englishman in San Diego and this is another in a series of our interviews titled Icons of Con. Now, that might seem like a very grand title, but the subjects that we talk to are industry insiders, Comic-Con commentators and pop culture celebrities who return each year to San Diego not only as invited guests, but also as dedicated fans, just like us. Now, after our first interview subject, uh, journalist, writer and con panel host Jeff Boucher joined us. Um, he had such a great time that he recommended a number of his friends to talk to me, including this episode's guest, uh, lifelong comics fan, um, the modern era uh, movies of Batman executive producer and longtime Comic-Con attendee Michael Uslan. Now, two things frustrated me about this interview. One, we usually run them as Google Hangouts, which does allow me to see the subject's faces and see how animated Michael got with this interview. It would have been lovely to have seen him on the screen. However, time constraints and technical limitations on Michael's part meant that this took place as a transatlantic phone interview. Uh, secondly, uh, the job that pays the bills when this interview took place is I work as a DJ on an evening and when Michael was free to do this, it was late afternoon GMT and only left me 20 or so minutes to talk to him. Now, as it happens, I gladly ran late for that evening's gig as the time just flew by listening to Michael's stories of the first Comic-Cons on the planet, uh, meeting his personal heroes and eventually bringing his Batman to the big screen, to San Diego, for the first time. Speaking to Michael Uslan, this is Icons of Con. Too much of your time. Um, I'd love to know what uh, Jeff said to convince you to uh, to do this for me. Uh, when Jeff Boucher asks a favor, you immediately say yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Well, let me just um, explain what the um, the idea of the the, the conversation is. Um, it's um, for a series of interviews I'm running called Icons of Con which I know is a very grandiose title, but it's um, about the people that go to con and are recognised as the faces of um, Comic-Con, especially San Diego. Um, I, I know that this year is a very big year for, you, for yourself and for um, Batman, uh, especially at con this year. Um, so... It's about your history with um, Comic-Con and from your first visits to the con up to kind of uh, present day. Because, um, Michael, uh, uh, Je uh, Jeff told me that you... Did you go to, like, the first Comic-Con? Or uh, one, of the, one of the first San Diego Comic-Cons? No, the, the actual first comic book convention ever held in, America, in the world. Wow. Um, it was in New York City in a flea bag hotel in July of 1964. 
um, 200 of us showed up at the first Comic-Con. Wow. So w- w- if you'd like me to start there, I can kind of take you back in time and... Uh, well, um, but, yeah, and tell that story. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I mean, for those listening who don't know who you are, who is Michael, is it Uslan, by the way? How, how do you pronounce his surname? It's pronounced Uslan. Uslan, excellent. Yes. Okay, so who is Michael Uslan, and how does it describe you on your passport? <laughs> Just that. <laughs> uh, nice guy. <laughs> um comic book fanboy uh, geek since he could uh, learn to read uh, from the comics. Um, avid comic book collector growing up with a absolute humongous comic book collection dating back to 1936 of which as of now 45,000 of them have been donated to Indiana University's Lilly Library which is its rare book library. Um, I was the the self-described boy who loved Batman when I was growing up. I discovered Batman uh, at age five. It was too scary for me. I stayed with Superman until I was a much more mature and sophisticated eight years old. And then I was willing to move into the arena of Batman and became a lifelong um, Bat fan from that moment on. But I loved all comic books, all superheroes, or Western humor, science fiction, fantasy, romance, Every genre that existed in comics, I collected. Wow. So, I mean, it was all, all genres then? All genres. I loved the medium of comics. Now, well... And I... Yes. Well, I mean, a, a, a lot of... I, I, I find when I talk to um, comic book fans that they either... Well, they they really enjoy the, the format and enjoy the, the, the styles and enjoy the, 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 the method of storytelling that comic books uh, present. But then there's also the comic book fans that look into the, the, the small box in the bottom left-hand corner and see who wrote and uh, drew these stories. Were you, were you someone who s- studied that from a very early age, or was that something that kind of developed later on? What you have to know in the context of the time is that when I started reading comic books in the 1950s, and into the beginning of the 60s, comic book credits were not given. You did not have those boxes. You did not know who the artists were or the writers were or the editors were, except in rare occasions. So I did come to know, hey, look at this issue. That's the good Batman artist. That's the not-so-good Batman artist. Isn't it funny that they're both listed as Bob Kane? Gee, I guess some days he has... um, his talent really going well, and other days he doesn't seem to. I had no idea there were different artists, there were ghost artists uh, drawing the same characters. So um, when I grew up, it was definitely about the medium itself. It was the graphic storytelling. You have to understand, when I was growing up in the 50s and early 60s, movies and TV to see uh, adventure fantasy movies and uh, Superman on TV, it was really pretty cheesy world of special effects was nowhere like the way it has become since the dawning of the computer age. The advantage with comic books was they were frozen movies. They could transport me away and entertain me, and I would escape from the daily traumas of grade school 
and uh, um, I, I, I would go off to foreign planets and undersea and strange lands and back in time or to the future in the pages of comic books, but the drawings were so captivating in terms of my imagination in a way that many movies of the day were unable to do. So for 10 cents and later 12 cents, um, it was a bargain for me to be transported like that. Comic books were my real escape as I was growing up. Sure. So when you did start recognizing um, the good Batmans from the bad Batmans, and you started recognizing the artists, is that when you started going to uh, comic conventions? Yes. Um, around about the time I was 13 years old, this new thing uh, had started called Comic Book Fandom. And it was organized primarily by Dr. Jerry Bales, who was a professor at Wayne State University in Michigan. And then Roy Thomas, who went on to become a very, very famous comic book writer and editor mm -hmm. and uh, publisher of Alter Ego, the uh, fan magazine, the fanzine. And um, fandom began to unite. And again, in the context of the time, there was no Internet. There were no Comic-Cons. So the only way we were able to communicate with each other was due to the good graces of a few editors in the world of comic books like Julie Schwartz at DC Comics. In the letter columns that they published in the DC Comics uh, that Schwartz edited, he would put people's full addresses. Wow. We could begin to write to each other because when I was growing up, really up until the time I was about 13, I was convinced that me and my friend Bobby Klein were the only two kids in the world that were so into comic books and superheroes. I had no idea there was anyone else like us out there. So that was, that was a critical moment. And as fandom began to organize, that's what led to the first comic book convention, uh, which was really the work of uh, two individuals, uh, a gentleman named Bernie Bubness uh, in New York, and another gentleman, David Taylor, uh, and they came up with this idea, and uh, Bernie Butness ran that first con, and it was in a flea bag hotel downtown in New York, and uh, they they sent out uh, through these early primitive fanzines that were on mimeograph paper and stapled together, and had print runs ranging from a hundred to maybe six hundred uh, fans, and the word began to spread that there were going to there was going to be a convention of comic book fans in New York. Well, 200 of us showed up that weekend, and um, I had to really try hard to convince my mom and dad to drive me and my friend Bobby there and to spend the weekend in New York while we went to this convention. And then when we got to the hotel, and we literally had to step over a, a guy passed out drunk in the lobby, there were roaches on the walls, and um, my mother took one look around and she said, we are out of here. <laughs> Um, I've kind of also been reading that the, the artists were 
Invited along to those early cons, not too sure what to expect with the fans, and pretty much they showed up and were very blown away by the enthusiasm of the fans, and they all kind of spread the word amongst themselves. So the artists and uh, the creators of comics um, also helped with conventions and fandom um, getting underway because they also they were as enthusiastic as the fans were. Well, it's true, but in the beginning, it was even more extreme than that. Uh, in the beginning, we couldn't get hardly anyone from the comic book companies to attend the convention. Oh, wow. They were frightened. They were actually put off. <laughs> they said, now, wait a minute. What kind of human being, as an adult, is interested in comic books and collecting comic books when the comic books we make are supposedly for 8- to 12-year-old boys? <laughs> How could there be this interest? These people must be degenerates or perverts or God knows what they are, but they've got to be really strange. So most of the companies and the people did not go. Stan didn't go. Stan Lee at Marvel sent his secretary, Lowe Steinberg, to check the place out. Um, from DC Comics, there were only a couple of people who showed up. Uh, two great writers, Otto Bender, who was one of my mentors, whom I had interviewed for these fanzines, um, because starting at age 13, I began writing for the fanzines, because I lived in New Jersey, sure. and I was within striking distance of New York City. So all of the creators, the artists and writers from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, lived in and around New York, in New Jersey or Long Island. So I was able to go visit them at their homes and interview them personally, and get all these great first-hand stories of how the comic book industry started, how the wow. first superheroes were created, how the comic book companies began. And, um, and that was a wonderful thing. And all the comic book companies back then were located in New York, so I would visit each comic book company, and I would meet the people there, I would do interviews, I would go on tours when they had them, and, and that was a magical thing as a kid. So by the time the conventions rolled around, Otto Binder, who was at that time writing uh, Superman, uh, Otto had co-created Supergirl, the Legion of Superheroes, yeah. Brainiac, and so many great characters. He had been the driving force of Captain Marvel and the Marvel family in the 1940s to early 50s. Bill Finger, who we know today as the co-creator of Batman, but back then uh, nobody really knew too much about Bill and what he did. They knew he wrote Batman and he wrote some Blackhawk and he wrote all kinds of different things. But Bill was one of the uh, few brave enough to show up. And it, it was very, very much hit and miss. Uh, one other thing that I would add, and this is with the credit going to uh, Bernie and to David and those guys, the question began with how do 200 people um, sanely talk about and discuss comic books? How do you do that? And they said, well, let's just put up a dais and we'll put up a table and we'll put up some chairs, and we'll do it in the form of panels. Pretty much creating the format that we know today. Yeah, it's it's the heart and soul of how comic cons are still done today. Sure. Um, then they had the first ever auction of comic books that weekend. Uh, Dr. Jerry Bales auctioned off some of his own personal copies from the Golden Age, and it was unbelievable. Um, the first issue of Action Comics that introduced Superman was auctioned off for the unheard-of price of $40. Whoa. <laughs> um, you, you might note that it recently went for over $3 million. Yes. Um, uh, I, uh, Batman number one, I bid on it. 
I bid $27 for it, and the darn thing sold for 29 so I just missed out on that uh, when I was 13. Um, so, so that took place. Uh, they decided to show old movie serials and uh, cartoons at night, and the question began as, what are we going to do on Saturday night? Of the 200 people here, it's like 197 men and three women. <laughs> what are we going to do? And that's when, between Bernie and David, they said, well, how about if we just tell everyone to come dressed up as their favorite superhero and we'll give out prizes for their costumes? And that was the night that cosplay was born. Well, that was going to be a, a question I was going to ask a little bit later on, because obviously uh, you started going to these cons when you were young. Have you ever cosplayed? Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, at, that first, at that first Comic-Con, um, my mom helped me make my costume. I went as the 1940 Sandman from DC Comics, oh, the guy wow. with the fedora and the gas mask. Yeah. And um, there was a magazine published at the time called Castle of Frankenstein magazine. And uh, in the magazine, somebody took a picture of me shooting Spider-Man, who was hanging from the pipe uh, downstairs in the basement of the Broadway Central Hotel. And we made it into the magazine. And that's a picture in my autobiography, which was published last year by Chronicle Books. It's called The Boy Who Loved Batman. I actually reproduced that uh, picture of me from seventh grade with me uh, dressed up as the Sandman from the first Comic-Con. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Okay. So that's when cons get started. But um, I think for very much contemporary con-goers, the biggest and most epic one is the one that, I mean, as a Brit um, coming to uh, North America, we come for San Diego Comic-Con. So when did you... You knew since the mid-70s. Okay. Before then, it was all New York. New York dominated. It was the New York Con. There was a Detroit Triple Fanfare that was one of the early Comic-Cons, um, but it was New York. And Phil Suling took over the New York Comic-Con, and he grew it. He really was the guy who um, expanded it, who was able to get the talent, the editors, the writers, the artists, the creators, to get the comic book companies themselves to support uh, comic book fandom and the convention. And he was the one that appealed to people like Will Eisner and Milton Kniff and Jack Kirby and Stan Lee to come out and be guests of honor and speak and, and, and be accessible to the fans. And so Phil Suling deserves enormous critical credit um, for having legitimized Comic-Cons and grown it to the point where it was then able to transition to San Diego. One of the big problems in New York by the mid-70s, everyone was complaining how expensive it was to mount a convention in New York City, to advertise and promote it in New York City. Um, and uh, you might recall at that time in the 70s, New York City was having more than a share of economic problems. Indeed. Um, the city was in the process of going bankrupt. So um, the, tr the transition happened to, uh, to uh, San Diego, and um, that, was, uh, that was a milestone. Today, San Diego, as you well know, uh, pretty much sells out of its tickets uh, within 24 hours. They have a capacity limit of somewhere around 125 or 35,000. I think it's 135,000. Yeah. And, and, and that's gone in a blink of an eye. And then you get to see fans literally invade and take over the entire downtown of a, of a major city. And 
if you've never seen it, if you've never experienced it, I would say um, go for it. It well, is an amazing spectacle. 2015 will be my fifth. Um, the 2010, 2010 was my first San Diego Comic Con. Uh, well, if you want to really um, uh, be stunned, um, this summer's San Diego Comic-Con will be my 50th <laughs> between New York and San Diego. Wow. Was, did you go to one of the first San Diego ones, or had it been running for a couple of years at that point? No, I did not go to the early San Diego cons because I was in school in Indiana right. at that time. Yeah. And I was, I was trying to pay for my schooling, and there was no way, uh, you know, unless I wanted to hitchhike with my wife, uh, there was no way I was, uh, was going to be able to get to San Diego in those first years. <laughs> when was your first uh, San Diego Comic-Con? My first San Diego Comic-Con um, must have been around about uh, 1980, let's see. In 1980, we announced our first Batman movie at New York Comic-Con. So um, I'm guessing my first San Diego was probably '81. Right. It, it had it moved down to the convention center at that point, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, my first ones were when it moved to the when it first moved to the convention oh, center. Right. So you'd have to check me on the date. Sure. I'm really fuzzy on that, but but that's when that happened. Um, an interesting note in uh, mentioning the 1980 Comic Con is that uh, my partner Ben Melniger and I had. Um, acquired the rights to Batman from DC Comics to make it to uh, movies on October 3rd, 1979. And then we set it up um, with a uh, film company to finance the movie, finance the development of the movie, and we were ready to announce the movie to the world. And in meeting with the studio people, I went out on a limb and I, you know, I, I must have been such a pain in the butt to a lot of people insisting that we break the announcement at New York Comic Con in July of 80. And they thought I was crazy out of my mind. They said, you know, this is going to be a major movie. Whoever heard of breaking the news at, at a silly comic book convention? Um, you know, we have, you know, major publicity in the New York Times and in these magazines and TV. I go, no, 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 you don't understand. I said, it's got to be at the Comic-Con. So finally, after much haranguing, they allowed me to do it, and they gave us a little money to do it, and we worked in conjunction with DC Comics. So in July 1980, at the, we had a press conference, an announcement to a packed house at, uh, it was at that time the Statler Hilton Hotel in New York City across from Penn Station. It's now the Hotel Pennsylvania. And um, we had the bat signal um, shining on the Empire State Building. And we had a, a, a cocktail party along with it. And that's where we announced um, the Batman movie. And that was the first time in history uh, a major motion picture was announced at a comic book convention. Wow. Well, I mean, well, that's kind of uh, taking me back to when... I, I know I may seem like I'm going, kind of going backwards and forwards uh, in time here, but I'm trying to get that... Um, that Certainly that period before you started um, with Batman on a professional level, because you've obviously turned your enthusiasms and passions from your childhood into a career. I mean, when did it first feel that you were attending Kongs, not so much as a fan, but as a, as a job, as it were? Uh, that would have been the 1980 convention. 
yeah. when uh, when we made the announcement there because you know I'm a fanboy and I've been going to the cons every year. Now all of a sudden I was speaking at one and making a major announcement and um, responsible for a function at one and and that changed everything. Um, but I, of course I've never lost the fact that um, you know I wear multiple hats and you know there yeah there's my producer hat but there's also my comic book fan hat and my comic book historian hat. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still absolutely love it. Recently, I spoke at a major university here, and during Q&A, a young lady said to me, well, Mr. Uslan, what exactly is your job? And I thought about it for a second, and I laughed. I said, well, really? Uh, every day I report to a sandbox and play with my favorite toys. That's what I do for a living. Uh, so the transition has been great. I found a way to take my passion in life, which is comic books and Batman, and make it into my work, and life doesn't get any sweeter than that. <laughs> when you, because uh, obviously when you say you, you brought uh, the movie movie announcement to San Diego Comic-Con in 1980, before that, what was the perception of Batman at that point? Was it still uh, considered quite campy, or was there like a, a hardened comic book fan at the convention that remembered the Bob Canes and remember the bill fingers and kind of were almost swimming against the tide of the fandom that remembered the TV TV show. Yeah, most of comic book fandom at that time were people who loved Batman as created by uh, Bob Kane and Bill Finger and added to by Jerry Robinson sure. um, starting in 1939, which was Batman is a creature of the night who stalks criminals from the shadows um, with some very scary villains. And um, when the Batman TV show debuted, I mean, I was so excited. I had been waiting months and months for this to happen. I, I couldn't have been more excited. And when it came on the air that night, uh, and I think I was in, whatever, uh, eighth or ninth grade, um, I was simultaneously thrilled and horrified <laughs> by what I was seeing on TV. Uh, I mean, I was thrilled that it was in color. Clearly, they were spending a lot of money on the sets. The opening animation looked great. The car was cool. But then it hit me that they had made Batman into a joke, and it was a comedy, and people around the world were laughing at Batman, and that just killed me. Wow. And um, it, it was that night, in fact, that um, I, prob I probably made what I would call my own young Bruce Wayne vow. <laughs> And watching that show, I thought, somehow, some way, I am going to show the world what the real Batman is like, the one created in 1939, the creature of the night, and find a way to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture those three little words, pow, zap, and wham. <laughs> so it was really that night that set me on a path that would ultimately define my career and guide my, my entire the rest of my life. Well, I mean, that's a mission statement. That's a mission statement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, when you go to cons nowadays, um, obviously you are a big part in what Batman is, Batman is perceived today. Um, do, you, do you get recognized at cons? Uh, I mean, well, can you walk freely around the exhibition floor, for example? Well, you know, it's funny. Um... What's, what's taking place now, which my wife is not really pleased with, is I'm getting recognized in the street. Oh, um, wow. It has happened so many times now in New York City. 
uh, getting on an elevator, um, going to going into a Starbucks, um, walking through security at an airport where the guy checking security asks me for an autograph. I mean, it, 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 it's just gotten strange. And the reason for that, really, is I have done so many DVD bonus features and extras and documentaries uh, over the years that have been disseminated, uh, you know, like along with our Batman DVDs and our animated DVDs and things. So people, um, fans, have, have come to recognize me for that. Walking around cons, it's great. It's great because I get stopped, you know, every uh, 25 or 50 paces by somebody, and I get into great conversations, or, you know, we do pictures, or I sign something for them, uh, but I'm a fan at heart, and I enjoy meeting them, and I because I am one of them still, and uh, um, it, it, I think it's it, it's great, and, and, and I really do enjoy it, and I love the fans. Excellent. When you, uh, when you say that your wife gets a little bit frustrated sometimes, does she come to the cons with you? Um, she finally broke down and went with me and my son to San Diego Comic-Con for the first time uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, I think it, it, it was for when we had a big Batman thing. Oh, I remember. It was when we had all the Batmobiles. Two years ago, and yes. Starting from the TV show to all the movies. And let me tell you, when we put all those Batmobiles together at one place at one time at San Diego Comic-Con, you would think the Beatles had arrived. Um, the, the cars were superstars. And it was that evening in Big Hall H where uh, we premiered the Batmobile documentary. So she came to that one and um, was able to uh, you know, get into the tumbler and, uh, and, and uh, do some fun things with the car. But... Um, she was absolutely overwhelmed by the sensory overload <laughs> of San Diego Comic-Con. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. The second you walk into the room, I don't care what lane, what aisle, or where, there is so much bombarding you in terms of visuals and sounds that you it's like a horse that wears blinders. If you don't put blinders on and just focus on one thing here and then move your head to the next thing over there and then move up and down or side to side. If you don't do it slowly, you're just completely overwhelmed and blown away in a good way. <laughs> so she did that for about um, 10 or 15 minutes and said, okay, I'm going back to the hotel. I will see you later. <laughs> well, I mean, that was certainly one of the epic memories of recent uh, Comic-Con with those um, Batmobiles outside the uh, Hilton Bayfront. That was just an amazing uh, moment. Uh, is it true that the Batmobiles are going to be making a return for the 75th? I, I know that you uh, you may not want to uh, reveal too much uh, about plans. Yeah, to, no, to... <laughs> I, I, always, uh, I always let the studio uh, <laughs> announce anything publicity-wise on its own. They, they, they love to control that and direct it the way they like. So uh, I, I bow to them to uh, reveal what they're going to reveal when they want to reveal it. Sure. I mean, where were you when the announcement was made about the Man of Steel sequel, the Batman vs. Um, Superman uh, film in Hall H. Where were you when that news dropped? Uh, were, were, you, were you in the uh, room? I, I was in the process of getting um, bombarded by emails and Facebook postings <laughs> and uh, messages and voicemails from, I think, everyone I've ever known <laughs> and probably uh, two-thirds of uh, all of comic book fandom. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it was something that um, 
it was a similar reaction when Michael Keaton was first announced as Bat- to play Bruce Wayne or Batman in the first movie, which I can't believe is now 25 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, and by the way, footnote, this year we are celebrating what I call the 175-50-25 anniversary of Batman because it's the 25th anniversary of our first Batman movie from 1989. Sure. It's the 50th anniversary of the new-look Batman with the yellow symbol around him that Julie Schwartz uh-huh. instituted in Detective Comics 327 in 1964. It is the 75th anniversary of Batman from uh, 1939, and it is the 100th anniversary of the birth of Bill Finger. Oh, wow. It's a, really an incredible, uh, incredible year, and in fact... I've written a piece on this for the San Diego Comic-Con uh, official booklet that oh, for the, distributed this year. For the souvenir book. Oh, brilliant. Oh, oh. And so, I mean, that, that was fun. Oh, I certainly look forward to reading that. Oh, that's um, so, so, so we went through this with Michael Keaton, and then the fans that um, you know were ready to attack with pitchforks and torches... Uh, when that news came out, you know, ultimately after seeing the film and seeing him in the film, you know, never wanted anyone else to ever play Batman. Um, when Heath Ledger was announced as the Joker, there was a similar uh, outcry. Uh, fans said, how can a guy who just played a gay cowboy in Brokeback Mountain play the Joker? It's going to destroy the character forever. And now, you know, as far as most of those fans are concerned, they acknowledge it's the performance of a lifetime. It is one of the most incredible performances is ever on film, and they really don't want to see uh, anyone else ever play the Joker. So, you know, we've been around this before, mm. and uh, I, I couldn't be more enthused, more thrilled. Well, you uh, you brought the um, the first um, Tim Burton film to Comic-Con. Um, did you ever have hopes for the Nolan films to be brought to, uh, to Con? Because, uh, rather famously, Christopher Nolan never brought um, any of his Batman trilogy to San Diego? Uh, first of all, you know how fortunate uh, you have to be to work in your life and be involved in something with a guy who's a genius? Absolutely. Um, I can sit back now after all these decades in the business and say, oh my God, you know, I've really been involved with three geniuses along the way. Um, young Tim Burton, uh, my dear friend is no longer with us, Anton First, who was our production designer on I the was first Batman movie. wondering who your third was going to be, yeah. Uh, Anton, he won the Oscar that year Absolutely. for his work. Um, he created Gotham City, the Batmobile, the look of the whole thing. Um, and if, if you just step back for a second, I contend that since that 1989 Batman movie, virtually every genre film since then, has been influenced by that movie and those two gentlemen. You can still, to this day, in all these different movies that come out within a genre, you can you can still see Tim Burton's vision. You can still see uh, the influence of Anton First's designs, and you, and you can, in fact, still hear the influence of Danny Elfman's music. Mm. Um, it, it it really was that revolutionary, and then. You know, 15, 20 years later, when Christopher Nolan comes in, you know, Chris deserves all the accolades and all the credit for the Dark Knight trilogy. Here, here was a man who was able to restore the darkness and dignity to Batman again and did it in a way whereby he elevated the, the, the art form. 
But when you walk out of one of Chris's Batman movies, you don't have to say, geez, that was a great uh, comic book movie. You can say, that was a great film. Yeah. And, and Chris did that. And he is passionate and loves and knows these characters. And the fans respect that. They know he's got that love and passion and knowledge base. So whether, in terms of marketing, a movie is first or second or third or fourth screened at San Diego or New York or Chicago Comic-Con or elsewhere, um, they know, the fans respect him because they know he respects the integrity of Batman. Sure. And, and that's what's essential. I often um, look at the, the history of the, uh, the films very much following the template of the, uh, the comic books. Um, so the 1989 Batman, uh, very much looking back at the uh, Bob Kane, Bill Finger era, the Joel Schumacher, um, slightly campier version, covering very much that um, 60s, um, like you say, the Pow Wham um, era. And then you had the, um, the Christopher Nolan films, very much um, looking at, say, The Dark Knight Returns, Taking that those two templates side by side, um, it's almost like they mirror each other in that um, there's very much an evolution of tone. Um, I, I always right. I always felt which which, which, right. which kind of makes now Batman open game because now the kind of the templates have reached the the nadir that in two thousand and fifteen or two thousand fourteen and two thousand fifteen it's now a whole new ball game, as it were. It's true. Yeah, this is a character, if you just look in the comics, let's forget about the animation, which is brilliant, by oh, the way. Yes. Uh, let's forget about the movies. Let's just talk about the comics. Over the decades, there have been so many different iterations of Batman in the writing, as well as in the artwork, in the design, in the tone, um, ranging from one extreme to <laughs> the other. I can show you issues of uh, Bat Genie and the Batman robot and the Super Batman from Planet X. Um, I, I, I can show you uh, Bat Baby. Um, but then on the other hand, I can show you issues of Batman that are, are darn close to uh, Dracula in terms of almost vampiric. They are so dark and cold. And, and you've got everything in between. So over 75 years, any filmmaker or animator, or writer, has so many choices to, to be made. And, and the question becomes, well, which is the true Batman? Well, in actuality, I mean, if you ask me, um, being the fanboy I was and coming up the way I did, my true Batman was the Batman of 39, uh, created by uh, Bob and Bill, and then expanded by Jerry, with like Batman number one that introduced the Joker and the Catwoman and then the introduction of the Scarecrow in World's Finest Comics. Um, but for most people, their true Batman is the one that they were first exposed to maybe when they were 12 years old. And um, that's why he, he, is, he continually is able to morph, and he represents many different things to many different people. And that's one of the magical things that has made Batman last so long. Very, very few superhero characters can do that. Sure, sure. Um, stepping away from Batman, just for a little while, just for a second, because you have had um, a, a varied career yourself that you've, um, you've 
been involved in quite a few characters as a producer. Um, we've actually had a, a question from um, one of our uh, uh, readers um, about uh, The Shadow and uh, knowing that um, uh, there, there was the possibility of a Shadow film with Sam Raimi. Um, is that possible that that may still happen? Uh, that movie is no longer in development, yeah. I'm sad to say. Uh, Sam, he's an amazing, amazing and talented director, and he is a huge Shadow fan. He became a Shadow fan when he was a kid, and it was the 1970s DC comic book run of The Shadow that really got him hooked into comics, uh, as well as to The Shadow. Early in his career, when he was unable to get the rights to The Shadow, he went ahead and made Darkman, which was really his homage to The Shadow. Um, I love this character so much. This character was the absolute direct inspiration for Batman, mm -hmm. and Bill Finger has admitted it. Um, you can read his quotes. What we didn't know when Bill said how he was directly inspired by and influenced by the Shadow was that he actually directly borrowed from the November 1936 Shadow Pulp uh, the story that he then made into the case of the Chemical Syndicate in uh, Detective Comics number 27, and the spot illustrations in that particular Shadow Pulp novel were <laughs> borrowed directly <laughs> by Bob Kane in rendering some of the artwork in that issue. So, so there's the direct correlation. I knew the, uh, the creative force behind the shadow, uh, Walter Gibson. I worked with Walter in the 80s, and I had a chance to ask him probably a million annoying questions. I wanted to know everything from his lips about the shadow and his, and his origin and the Jurassic ring and the villains, and it was quite wonderful for me. And, and now I've been lucky enough that in the 1970s, I had the opportunity to write part of the... Um, Shadow series at DC, and I did at that time write the uh, first and only crossover between the Shadow and the Avenger, uh, two great pulp characters. More recently, through Dynamite Comics, I just uh, I have a graphic novel that just came out last month, um, which is the first ever meeting of the Shadow and the Green Hornet, and it's the Shadow Green Hornet Dark Nights. <laughs> and um, the last thing I will say is tomorrow at WonderCon in Anaheim, there's going to be an announcement made about my next graphic novel. And I um, uh, can't say too much about it, but since you're asking about The Shadow, sure. I can tell you it's going to be something very special. Brilliant. So there you go, Matthew Smith. There's your question uh, about um, The Shadow film. Uh, may not be the answer that you were after. Actually, let's go to a couple of questions that we've uh, we've had uh uh, submitted to uh, to put to you because obviously a lot of people are really excited about um, uh, about this year about Batman seventy five and you've already said that you you'd prefer to let um, DC make any announcements um, if there is a Batman seventy five panel at Comic Con would you like to be on that panel do you, I I think if there's a space that you you should be there. I appreciate that very much. Right now, uh, I'm going to be appearing with Kevin Smith and a few people at the Paley Center in New York for the New York 75th anniversary celebration of Batman on, I believe it is May 5th. Um, it is, yes, May 5th at 5.30 at the Paley Center in New York. Then I'm going to hop on a plane and I'm going to go to L.A., and work with uh, Jeff Boucher 
Friday on uh, Batman's 75th anniversary at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood, and that we're doing uh, Saturday night, May 10th in L.A. So, uh, you know, the celebrations continue. There will be many celebrations in many uh, places. And um, with San Diego, as I mentioned, I have written for their booklet the uh, piece on the 75th anniversary of uh, Batman as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm as excited as the eight-year-old fanboy I was. <laughs> so there you go, Jason uh, Nieves. Um, hopefully we'll be seeing um, Michael at a panel in San Diego. Um, what's been your personal experience with Comic-Con, with the shows that you've been involved with? What's been your favourite um, memory that has, has stuck out when you've uh, gone to uh, Comic-Con, would you say? Wow. I know, I know, I know. It's, it's a big question. That is, that, is a, that is a huge question. I don't know how to boil it down. It, it's the whole overall encompassing experience, knowing that that entire town has been taken over by comic fans. That when you go to a restaurant that's jammed uh, in San Diego, you know that virtually everybody at that restaurant is a comic book freak. When you go out to the bars and you know everybody sitting there is into comics, uh, at, the, at the hotels, walking through the streets day or night, um, it's, it's that feeling. Um, because let me tell you, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s uh, and into the 70s, Believe me, it was not cool to be over the age of 12 and still known to be collecting and reading comic books. Uh, people stared at you like you were um, an oddball. And I'll tell you something else. When I was uh, in high school, age uh, 17 and 18, and the girls you know, would hear that I still collected comic books, I became what I would call date challenged. Um, so now, to think that with the beginning of the blockbuster movies, that comic books are seeding these blockbuster films. Comic books are providing hit television series, um, great heralded animation, acclaimed video games. It's impacting merchandising everywhere. It's, a, it's influencing fashion and eyewear and, and, and everything you can imagine. Comic book original artwork by artists who had for so long been looked down the nose at by society and um, um, you know the the, art, the artistic world in uh, New York or London, you know now their work are, their works are hanging in galleries, they're hanging in museums. It, it's a wonderful thing. So my point here is after all of this speaking to all my fellow comic book nerds and geeks, we win. Well, yes. We win. It, you know, it's a great victory for us because now it's all cool. It's all hip, and it is all accepted as a legitimate art form. Well, I, I definitely, I personally look at the term um, popular arts and say, well, yes, we're popular now. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, all, it's right there in the title. Uh, we, we, can't, we did kind of win. Um, okay, we uh, one a uh, couple more questions. Uh, certainly, one more question from um, uh, one of our readers, um, uh, Neil Williamson, has asked: um, wh When you do go to cons, uh, what do you personally target at, as your priorities at a con? Are there specific panels or the exhibition floor? Or do you even um, make your way into somewhere like Hall H or Ballroom Twenty, or do you just try and have a look at all of it? Okay, well, 
we have to divide it into two parts here. <laughs> First is my professional obligations. So they may have me on panels. Uh, I've been uh, giving uh, keynote speeches uh, from time to time. I've been guest of honor. So that, that comes with certain obligations. At the um, at San Diego, I've been a, a presenter at the Eisner Awards. Um, I've done book signings, autograph sessions. Um, I have uh, introduced movies and documentaries that we've done. So all of that goes first into my schedule, and I have to give priority to that. Once those things are set, then what I want to do is I want to hobnob with my fellow wizards. I want to see as many of my friends and pals uh, over the years from the comic book industry, the movie industry, the TV industry. Everybody kind of gets together at San Diego. Uh, at night, there are par there's usually three or four parties per night, and we kind of do the party circuit trying to show up and uh, at least make an appearance at everybody's um, uh, gatherings. Uh, so that's, that's part of it, the socialization. Um, beyond that, I want to mingle with the fans. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of producer that I typically do not go to screenings. I, I, I do not go to private screenings. I go to movie theaters with mass audiences, and I'll sit in the middle of the movie theater with everybody, and that's the only way I can understand what the audiences are interested in, what they're reacting to, and I'll walk out with them and listen to what the buzz is because it's a producer's responsibility to be in touch with the tastes of the public. Sure. And if you just go to private screenings, um, you can't be very good at that job after a while. So, so I love the mingling with the fans and talking to the fans as much as I can at these events. Um, th that's been a great thing. Even when I'm doing a signing, um, I, sometimes I drive the people crazy at the different booths because <laughs> if a fan wants to talk to me while I'm signing, I want to engage and, and have a give and take. I don't just want to scribble my name on something and have them walk away. Um, so I really enjoy that part of it as well. And then I try to pick out panels that I can go to, that, that I have the, t the time slot available, and it's usually panels on the history of comics. I, I'm a history buff. I love the history. I'm a comic book historian, so I seek those out. I like to try to find panels with artists and writers um, who come from the eras of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, too often, these people are not given the proper attention they should be given. They are not given the honor they should be given, and I want to make sure that they all are recognized and all, and all know how much we appreciate how much they contributed to our superheroes, to our art form, uh, to the whole world of comics. I can imagine that you're going to be, as I can imagine, dr driving um, the initiative to get as many of those um, uh, creators in, in San Diego and indeed the cons this year for Batman 75. Uh, you know, Batman 75 is important. You know, this is now only the second character to have hit that milestone. Uh, in the next few years, you're going to have many. Captain Marvel, Archie, Captain America, then Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, the Justice Society slash Justice League. Um, it's going to be one after another <laughs> that, are, that are going to uh, be celebrated. And the next one coming up will be um, this fall where Marvel Comics number one will turn 75, and that's the issue that gave us the Human Torch and Submariner. Yeah. Brilliant. So, obviously... Um, San Diego Comic-Con 
is going to be a big year. Um, I'm guessing the... Are you going to WonderCon this year, or are you... Are you no, I cannot go to WonderCon this year because I have a, a previous contractual obligation. My son is uh, going in my stead, so he is representing me there. Excellent. So you will be making your way to um, San Diego Comic-Con. And, um, I'll be at San Diego. I will be at New York for sure. Brilliant. And, uh, and beyond that, I'm going to be uh, attending um, some of my first uh, international Comic-Cons. Um, I will be appearing at, at the first ever Thailand Comic-Con in Bangkok in early July. And um, there will be some announcements forthcoming about other international Comic-Cons uh, because I've, I really would like to get out to more international ones and meet the fans from all over the world. Um, that's very important to me, and that's become a priority. Sure. Well, I mean, that, I think, is um, reflecting on not only how San Diego has uh, changed as a con, but how um, cons have changed, that the these events are taking place worldwide. Um, how do you feel... Uh, how has Comic-Con changed... Or Comic-Cons changed for you obviously apart from the size and the um the exposure worldwide how do you feel um cons have changed certainly in terms of um embracing um other media perhaps well um i am a little bit chagrined <laughs> that comic cons today it's probably a misnomer you know a lot of them should be pop culture cons sure um, and, and I'm a little bit chagrined at that some that are labeled as Comic-Cons devote more and more and more attention to other things. And what, um, what hurts will be if I walk through a Comic-Con someplace and I see the comic, the comic book dealers and the original comic book art dealers and the uh, comic book um, uh, writers and artists who are doing their autographs relegated to a small area or to a back area. Um, I think it's really important that the focus still remain somewhat at least on comic books and the people behind the comic books. Well, I, um, I think that's what that's really important. I think that's what's really um, special about um, San Diego in that the artist alley um, section of the con is so big. It does represent and uh, recognize um, comic not only just the the big two, but also the the, the strong independent spirit that of uh, of new emerging talent. Um, I, I I I'm very much um, pleased to see Artist Alley as big as it is. And also, when you look through the uh, the, the the schedule, you see so many panels um, devoted to um, to comics and comic history. Um, I, I I find that very um, I find that reassuring. Um, about uh, it, it is you, you know you never want to sell your soul to Hollywood you, you know you, <laughs> you you want your soul to be the comics not the Hollywood stuff uh, and um, because once you get to that you, you get into a tail wagging the dog situation and and I would give a special shout out to New York Comic Con at the Javits Center which you know really goes out of its way to really maintain a focus on comics, and uh, and that's much appreciated. And and you hit another great point on Artist Alley. You can go to Artist Alley in San Diego and New York and all these other cons, even the smaller ones, and you can see still out there Al Bellman, who's uh, about to turn 90. Al is the last surviving Marvel artist from the golden age of comics. 
he drew Captain America, the Patriot, Submariner, and the Torch. And um, he's the last one standing. And there he is, doing commissions, signing, drawing for people. It's incredible. And then you go to the booth right next to him, and it's a young man who's maybe 19 or 20 years old who's just emerging in the alternative press and the independent press as a hot new rock star to be in the world of comics. So the fact that Artist Alley gives attention to both eras, as well as who's hot in the mainstream right now, that's a, that's a really great thing. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I, I think I'm going to wrap up with just one last question that has been uh, um, submitted by uh, Neil Williamson. And I think we'll, uh, we'll close on this. And it's, more, it's a personal question for yourself. Uh, in that, um, and you, you talked about um, that Comic-Con should very much embrace um, and continue to embrace um, comic books um, and that Hollywood, it shouldn't um, dominate too much. However, is there a comic book uh, storyline from any character that you would still like to see brought to life on the big screen? Many. <laughs> <laughs> I could go through and, and, and name you a bunch that were my favorites when I was growing up, and I would love to see all of them come to fruition. I was a huge fan of Doc Savage and The Shadow. I was a huge fan of Thunder Agents, uh, the Wally Wood creation that was just in incredible, uh, that involved Steve Ditko, the uh, co-creator of Spider-Man and Doctor oh, yes. Strange, and so many other wonderful legendary artists. Um, I'd always loved DC, The Spectre, and Hawkman, and uh, um, it just wonderful, wonderful characters. Um, Marvel, I, I, I was a huge fan of Doctor Strange. Can't wait for a Doctor Strange movie. Um, well, it's, so it's, there's it's, still a lot of great, great characters that I'd like to see brought to the silver screen, and one in particular, and this goes back to my mentor, my days of being mentored by Otto Bender, my days of um, my correspondence through junior high school and high school with C.C. Beck, and that's Captain Marvel, whom some people today know as Shazam. Well, yes. Well, I mean, you mentioned two there. I mean, obviously um, uh, referenced in the recent um, Captain America film was Doctor Strange, so there's still hope for that one. But also um, Doc Savage is getting a, a new book, so hopefully... Um, that character will once again get some uh, traction and some popularity uh, in the from the general readership. So you never know. You never know. It's uh, it's it's more than likely. You can only hope. You can only hope. <laughs> and Leonard, uh, stay tuned for uh, an announcement about that, which I hope will be forthcoming uh, before much longer. Okay. All right, that sounds like a little bit of a, an exclusive. I can live with that. That's fantastic. Michael, thank you very much indeed for your time. Um, I really look forward to seeing you at uh, San Diego in July. And um, thank you very much indeed for taking part in this conversation. I am so happy to have done it. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thanks to all the fans, all your listeners. Um, I really enjoyed this. Excellent. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye.